You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. In the Old Testament, we learn that David had been a shepherd before he was the king of Israel. He confessed to King Saul before he went out to fight against Goliath that he had previously, when tending his father's sheep, protected them from the attacks of the lion and the attack of the bear. David the shepherd. And here in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, Jesus is busy about the protective ministry of shepherding his disciples. There are some wolves and lions and bears that Jesus is going to protect his disciples from. You see, his disciples, of course, couldn't see the end from the beginning. They hadn't lived the book of Acts. They hadn't experienced persecution. They hadn't gone through the waves of the move of the Holy Spirit in and through their lives and the early stages of the church here on earth. They hadn't endured any of that. And in their mind's eye, they have a completely different perspective and picture of what it is that is going to come. But Jesus, on the other hand, understands and knows what these men are in for. And so he begins to give them here in this section, in these first 21 verses, words of warning with protection attached to each warning that will help them against the attacks of the enemy in the years to come. Now, when we closed out chapter 11, we saw that the Pharisees made a determination to try to trap Jesus in his words with a desire, basically, to wait for him, desiring ultimately to see him dead. But here at chapter 12, the first verse, it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another. And so you see there in verse 1, the intense popularity of Jesus. There's just a, an interest in him. And, and that's really the way that it so often goes. You hear the perhaps opinions of the elite of the day, whether it's the intellectual elite or the cultural elite. You hear the criticisms of some, although there were some Pharisees who gave their lives to the Lord and became disciples of Christ. But in general, you hear that rejection, that strain of rejection. But with the populace, with the crowd, there was this excitement about the Lord. So much so that you see that beautiful little phrase from Luke. They were actually trampling one another. That's how intense the desire to see Christ was amongst the crowds. And when that was happening, it says that he began to say, to his disciples first. So you see there in that statement that Jesus now is really embarking on that shift in ministry. We've been talking about that here in this section of Luke's gospel, that at the end of chapter 9 on into chapter 10, there is a change of tone. Jesus turns from the crowd-based ministry and begins to pour into his disciples. And so here, in response almost to this pressing in of the crowds, Jesus presses in to his disciples. And he says to them first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing, verse 2, is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. The warning that Jesus gave to his disciples was very simple. Watch out for hypocrisy. He called it and said it this way, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven or yeast is like various forms of sin in that it permeates everything. And the hypocrisy of the Pharisees had permeated everything that they were all about. Strictly speaking, the word hypocrisy means the wearing of a mask, play acting, masking true features. And the Pharisees were a perfect example of what hypocrisy can do. You know, originally the Pharisees, years before Christ came, they were a blessing to the people of Israel. They had begun so well in that intertestamental period in between the Old and New Testaments. They stood for purity. They stood for separation. They were like the Puritans for England years ago. They had a beautiful influence upon the nation, and they had a passion for God. But something happened. By the time Jesus came onto the scene, the Pharisees had been corrupted. Their passion wasn't for God. Their passion was for the self. Their desire wasn't for his holiness, but for their exaltation. The heart behind the Pharisees was completely gone. And here, Jesus performs an autopsy right there for the disciples and says, listen, if you're wanting to know what it was that killed the Pharisees, it's this. The leaven that killed them was hypocrisy. It got into them. They began wearing a mask. They began play acting, masking true features. And when that got into them, it ran its course and ultimately it killed them. Now, what is a believer to do? We're, we're to watch out for hypocrisy. It's good to be warned of this by the Lord. But what is the protection of our hearts? And I think Jesus beautifully does this in verse 2 and 3. We read it, but notice there over and over again, he says, listen, the things that are covered up, they will be revealed. The things that are hidden, they will be known. The things you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. What this tells us is that there is no fooling God. There is no ability to actually pretend in the presence of God. God sees all. God knows all. And ultimately, at the end of the day, hypocrisy does not work with God. They, the Pharisees, had covered and hidden and sat in the dark and whispered in private rooms. But it would not work. Ultimately, it would be exposed. And it's good for a believer to understand this. You know, it doesn't matter how well you cull or organize or divide up your life or your time or your relationships, your heart. It doesn't matter how much you try to divide those things, to have some in the light and some in the dark. The reality is, is that those divisions will not work. God knows all will become known. And so the protection for us is to realize that that's the case and to realize that now rather than later. What this produces then in our hearts is a desire to live currently an unmasked, revealed, known, in the light, proclaimed on the housetops relationship 
with the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. We're to take the mask off of our faces before God. We're to put off fake devotion to God. We're not to pretend or feign passion for Christ when it does not exist. We're to go to the Lord, go to God with honesty within our hearts to say, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm experiencing. Not to pretend that we've dominated over our sin, that we've gotten all of the victory that we need, but to approach God with honesty and to say, God, you know where I'm struggling. You, you can see this. I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would strengthen me. I pray that you would bless my life. And I think that so often we can slip into that hypocritic kind of life. And, you know, whether it's play acting for our children or for our friends or for our community or for our spouse or even playing the hypocrite for ourselves. And so we've got to make sure that there's a resistance against that hypocrisy. We've got to watch out for it. Jesus says, beware of it. Now, in verse four, he gives them another word of warning. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, Jesus here announces something rather beautiful. First of all, notice he's preparing them for persecution, isn't he? He says to them, listen, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. You know, we live in an age where there are believers on earth who are dying for their faith. The reality, however, is that when their persecutors actually take their lives, you know, when they bring them to the point of death, behead them or whatever other grotesque form of persecution they bring upon them, when they take their lives, it's full of irony because the persecutors are actually eliminating their only means of persecution because all they can do is harm the body. Jesus said there is nothing more after that that they can do. They can't hurt the soul. They can't harm the spirit once they are unable to harm the body. Jesus says, no, don't fear them. Instead, fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, when he says this, he's speaking about God. He's speaking about the Lord himself and his power and his might to be the ultimate judge over the true human being, not just the body, but the body, the soul, the spirit. God is the judge of all. And so here, Jesus is warning his disciples. He'd warn them about hypocrisy. Here he says, and gives them a warning about the fear of man. Watch out for the fear of man. Jesus knew that his friends, these men, would be faced with this reality. He says to them, I tell you, my friends. These men were his friends, and he knew his friends were headed into the age and the era of the book of Acts. He knew that there would be a struggle. It says in Isaiah 51, verse 7 and 8, God speaking says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, 
and my salvation to all generations. That's a word of exhortation to us as God's children. Don't be afraid of those who can harm the body. Instead, realize that they will not last forever, but God's righteousness will be forever and his salvation to all generations. You know, the fear of man can at times swallow up the move of God. We, of course, love those moments in history and those moments in the book of Acts when persecution actually multiplied the church. The church actually would thrive under the pressure of persecution. But there have been times that persecution and the fear of man has swallowed up a move of God and that the buckling under pressure has put a halt or slowed down the work that God is doing, at least in an earthly kind of sense. We know that God is continuing to move and that God is continuing to work. So what is the protection for the child of God concerning the fear of man that can easily invade our hearts? Well, Jesus says, well, instead of having a fear of man, Instead, you need to fear God. There is one greater than man. You need to respect and reverence him. You know, you've perhaps heard the statement, fight fire with fire. You know, if there's a forest fire, you can go out and you can burn around the perimeter of your home. You can prepare with fire and combat the raging fire that is to come. And there is a fear that is greater than the fear of man. It's not that the fear of man will completely and entirely dissipate. It's that what needs to overcome it is a wonderful and beautiful fear, reverence, respect, awe for God himself. And why would we have an awe for God? Why would we have a healthy and wonderful respect for God? Well, Jesus tells us here in a few different ways. First of all, he says, Well, because those who persecute you, there's nothing more that they can do after they've taken your life. But there is one who has authority to cast into hell. In other words, God has authority over the afterlife. It's a very good reason to fear him. Secondly, he says in verse 6, and we move on in our text, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And so here he says some beautiful things about God. He says, listen, God knows the number of all of the sparrows on earth. You know, these little insignificant birds, I'm not sure if they were actually sparrows or not, but small birds, these little small birds that would be sold in the marketplace for a tiny amount of money, not one of them is forgotten before God. God sees all of them. He knows all of them. And, and then Jesus announces, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, literally labeled by God. What that tells us is that not that God goes through the process of naming all of our hairs or counting all of our hairs, but just that he labels them. He, he knows them. They are designated by him. Nothing escapes His knowledge is the point that Jesus is making. And so we fear him because he has a power and authority over the afterlife, but also because he knows everything and he knows everything about us. And this would, of course, bring some comfort to those who are in persecution. This is not something that is happening outside of God's knowledge and God's understanding. 
And so he knows everything about me. But beyond that, and here's the beautiful thing, fear not, Jesus said at the end of verse 7, you are of more value than many sparrows. It's great to know that he has the authority over the afterlife and that he knows everything about us. But to know that he actually values us, that sparrows might die and believers will be martyred, but God is not indifferent to either and that he cares and that the care that he has over the sparrow is insignificant in comparison to the great love and the great value that he places upon a human being. And so to understand this about the Lord, to have this fear of God firm within our hearts is a beautiful reality that I think Jesus is telling us can help us through the process of the fear of man. Proverbs 4 verse 23 tells us, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. It's so easy to slip into the fear of man. It is so easy to give your heart over to that, but to keep your heart in the, in the fear of God, the reverence of God, the respect for God. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, Jesus speaks of this acknowledgement and denial that he would give before the angels of God. What we're to take that to mean is not that Jesus is reporting to the angels, but that if he's making these proclamations in front of the angels, well, we know that God's throne room is a place where angels occupy. So he's making this report to God himself. He's acknowledging individual people before God or denying them before God there in the throne room of his father. Just a beautiful concept. So Jesus said here, listen, you know, I tell you, if you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you in that throne room. If you deny me before men, then I will deny you before God. Now, the warning, of course, is very simple. That we must be a people who watch out and are on guard against the tendency of human beings and disciples specifically to deny Jesus. Now, I think in one sense, Jesus is simply making an emphasis. Disciples must make a choice. And if you're a disciple, you've made your choice. You want to follow Jesus. You want to love Jesus. You want to stand for Jesus. And you're going to acknowledge him before men. But wouldn't we say as well that even if you've made that decision, and even if you have acknowledged Jesus before men, you have claimed to be a believer, isn't it also true that in a persecution age, it's tempting to deny Jesus on a lot of different levels? I think that that's so true. You know, not just martyrs, but everyday believers. And not just on great occasions, you know, will I deny him at the point where uh, I'm under the guillotine, but just through everyday life, will I stand for the Lord? Will I confess that I know the Lord? And, you know, just being on guard against the tendency to be embarrassed to confess that you 
you know, love the Lord, that you had a great weekend where you went to church and the Lord spoke to you, or that you're a disciple of his, or that you believe God's word. These are things that oftentimes a believer can become embarrassed to confess. Jesus says, listen, for those who acknowledge me, I will acknowledge them. And everyone, verse 10, who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So there's some grace that comes, you know, in case we might say to ourselves, oh my goodness, I mean, I don't think that I have every single moment in my life that I've had an opportunity to acknowledge Jesus. I don't think that I've done it. Well, he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, the idea or the teaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has been a stumbling block for many sensitive believers over the years. And unfortunately, one reason for that is that some people have so oddly and strangely interpreted what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In the context of what's happening, you remember last chapter, the religious leaders and people that were there said, He's working these miracles, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the power of the devil. That's how he's casting out demons. And you might say, well, that's a long time ago in the text. How is that the backdrop of this? Well, you know it from the other Gospels. Mark chapter 3, the scribes came down from Jerusalem saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And then immediately in response to that, Jesus called them out about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why am I saying all of that? Well, I'm saying that the religious leaders were, at the very least, in danger of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when they deliberated, thought about it, and were beginning to come to a final determination that Jesus' work and life and ministry was not of God, the Holy Spirit, but was of the devil himself. And when a person makes that final estimation about Jesus, and they say, no, I considered him, I've seen him, I've watched him, and I do not believe that what his work is about is from God. I don't believe that God is behind it. When that is the confession, I believe that that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps a good way to think about this is the brothers of Christ himself said very negative words about Jesus. But those men were forgiven. They spoke a word against the Son of Man, but they were forgiven. They made a comeback and they became prominent figures in the early church. But these Pharisees were in danger of committing that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that as long as a person is alive, they have an opportunity to reverse course and to say, yes, I believe that the work of Christ is the work of God. Now, he tells them in verse 11, you know, because he had just told them, you know, you don't want to deny me before men. There might be a little bit of worry or concern attached to that. Will we be those who deny? Well, here's what he said in verse 11, a beautiful word of comfort. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The protection for the disciples was to know 
that when they opened their mouths, the Holy Spirit would help them say the right things. And especially when they got into the worst of all situations, when they got into the environment where their lives would be required of them, he says, don't worry. In that moment, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. You're not going to blaspheme the Spirit, but you're going to speak by the Spirit. I believe that believers today, it would be good for us to trust and to lean upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit so much more. Believing that he'll teach us, that he'll give us the words to speak when we're talking with others, when we're defending ourselves and defending the faith and giving a reason for the hope that's in us. That we would lean upon the Spirit of God. That we would follow those inklings that he places within our hearts. He is so good and he's got the right thing to say at the right moments at the right time. And to trust and to believe that the Holy Spirit will help you say the right things. Now at that moment in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So a classic controversy. This kind of controversy has stayed with us all the way to our modern age. Now, he might have been complaining about Deuteronomy 21 verse 17, where the older brother is told to be able to receive a larger inheritance than his younger sibling. And so perhaps the younger brother is saying, hey, tell my older brother that we should divide it 50-50, not this, you know, one-third, two-thirds kind of situation. But Jesus said to him in verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I think when Jesus says that, he's saying, This is not my focus. I'm not here to reform a nation. I'm not here to be your judge or your king in the way that you might think of me. No, nations can have rules and laws to abide by. But I am creating a new nation with new citizens. You know, in the church age, the response would be, let them take your tunic. You know, let them, let them rob you. Let them have your stuff because you have God. Then he said to them in verse 15, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So we've been warned about hypocrisy. We've been warned about the fear of man. We've been warned about the tendency to deny Jesus. Here we are warned about covetousness. Of course, one of the Ten Commandments tells us that we are not to be a covetous people, but the human heart is prone to covetousness. Perhaps it is the most common sin. It was covetousness. You know, a discontentment with the state that they were in that cast the angels out of heaven and drove Adam and Eve out of paradise. Covetousness can do so many ugly things. Wars and quarrels and fights and divisions and jealousies and hatred oftentimes come from covetousness. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. So he says, be on guard against all covetousness. Now he enforces this exhortation or warning with a parable in verse 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And so this rich man, notice that quite often he says, this is what I will do. I this, I that, my this, and my that. And notice that he speaks to himself, and his ultimate goal is to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God is absent from his equation. Now, many listening to that parable might have admired the man for his success. Oh, you built barns, you stored up, you're able to kick it. This is the goal of life. You must be so happy. But Jesus said, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus said, listen, this man wasn't wise after all. His soul is required of him. Literally, it means demanded back. God said, listen, I loaned you your soul. Now give it back to me. Give an account for your life. And the things which you prepared, whose will they be? You can't enjoy the things that are in your barn. Instead, you ought to be, Jesus said in verse 21, rich toward God. So is the one, he says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, the beautiful protection against covetousness for us as God's people is to know that in Christ there is much more to life than possessions. You know, life without God is a life reduced to things, to the material. But life with God can be about so much more. And that's the lesson here. This isn't even really a rebuke towards common sense reasonableness. This isn't a rebuke to the Proverbs. It's possible to be a disciple and also wealthy. That's a distinct possibility in the New Testament era. But what we are to be, no matter what our financial situation, is we must be rich toward God. We must have the righteousness and gifts and prayer and serving and experience with, with God, eternal significance. I'm so glad in my life that early on in my younger years, there were moments where God just broke through into my foolishness and demonstrated just his beauty and his glory to my heart. Moments of prayer and worship where I, I was not doing anything to create the environment and God just broke in and spoke to my heart and I got a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his beauty because it helped me over the years understand that God and the life with God in the spiritual realm is so much more real than anything that we can see or touch physically. It's hard to keep that perspective but let us know that in Christ there is much more to life than possessions. There's Jesus protecting us, guarding us, warning us, defending us like a good shepherd. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.